Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. With the new film version of Frank Herbert's Dune being released, here is a short interview with the author about his book and his career. During the July 4th weekend of 1981, the Probabilities crew, Richard Lupoff, Lawrence Davidson, and myself, we went to the Westracon Science Fiction Convention in Sacramento. One of the guests that weekend was Frank Herbert. By that point, he'd written several novels, including what had become known as the Dune Trilogy, Dune, Dune Messiah, and Children of Dune. Earlier that year, a sequel to the trilogy had been published, God Emperor of Dune. We managed to corral the author for an interview that lasted, including some socializing, to just under a half hour. When I got back to KPFA, I discovered the tape had screwed up, and the final portion of the interview had speed variations that made it unlistenable. We aired about 10 minutes, and it never re-aired. Now, after digitizing and playing games with the speed, I've managed to save a couple extra minutes at the end. The final question, which I'll discuss after the recording, was unsalvageable. Good evening. Welcome to Probabilities. My name is Richard Walensky. With me, Larry Davidson. We're the normal hosts, and welcome to a new time slot on Tuesdays. And our guest today, also we have Dick Lupoff here, but he'll come in a little bit later on. Our guest today is Frank Herbert, author of Dune, Dune Messiah, Children of Dune, God Emperor of Dune, Destination Void, Under Pressure, also known as Dragon in the Sea, and a number of other science fiction novels. Not to mention Gunga Dune. Right, or, of course, <laughs> the Dune Buggy and Lorna Dune. Right? Yes, that's right. <laughs> and the one you've written in, uh, in collaboration with Anne McCaffrey, uh, Dune Dragon, right? That's right. <laughs> no, that's Dragon Dune. <laughs> I'd like to ask you some questions on your early career. You started your career as a writer in the newspapers, and I was wondering how you made the transition between being a newspaper writer and becoming a science fiction writer. Transition? I supported my writing habit by working for newspapers for years, and I didn't see it as a transition. I just saw it as a, another form of writing. Was there any specific inspiration that brought you to science fiction as opposed to writing mysteries? Science fiction is so damned attractive because it is open-ended. It's infinite number of settings, infinite number of kinds of characters. You have no boundaries. And a writer loves that. Writer, don't hold me down. Don't fence me in. Those are our songs, you see. Your first story was Looking for Something, and it was published in Startling Stories in 1952. Do you have any recollections of your dealings with Samuel Mines? Uh, none whatsoever, since all of the dealings were done by my agency in New York. After that story, you went on to sell mainly to Analog and Galaxy, and I was wondering what your dealings were like with uh, John W. Campbell and or Horace Gold. Uh, 
Horace Gold and John W. Campbell were voices on the telephone to me. I, well, I met Horace, but I never met John Campbell in person. Did he have any editorial suggestions? No. The interesting thing about my dealings with John Campbell is that I never submitted an idea to him. I submitted completed stories. And by and large, he was, uh, he was very nice to me in editing. They, they came out the way I wrote them. Including Dunlo. Oh, yes. A few minor things, little, few little changes in punctuation, that sort of thing. Did you maintain those changes, say, for Dune World when it became Dune? If it did not interfere with my intent, they were so minor and so rare, you had to have handheld copy to find them. What about Horace? He was notorious fooling around with people's copy. Horace pretty well left me alone. In the reference books, when it says Frank Herbert, it says Frank Herbert worked in radio. It never says what you did. I had a morning news broadcast where you get up at 4.45, go pull all of the copy off the printers, which have been pouring it out all night, go through it, edit out enough to put you on the air for 15 minutes or a half hour. It was uh, two half-hour shows in the week, and the rest of them are 15 minutes. Then you sit down at a table. A man behind the glass over there holds his hand up and points at you, and you begin reading the news. <laughs> Which station was this for? This was the station in Santa Rosa. You were also a newspaper man in Santa Rosa. That's right. Back before the, uh, when newspapers could own a radio station and have a local monopoly, you know. Did any of your experiences as a newspaper man tie directly into any of your science fiction novels? Not directly, but everything that you do influences. Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. That's not exactly true. There's one area that, that, that did influence it. I went out to do a magazine piece on the control of sand dunes at uh, Florence, Oregon, and wound up with the beginning, just the beginning, the entry into the research, which was the locale and setting research that devolved into dunes. As you mean, as you were there, you saw, you began to get the idea of what you were going to do. No, I just got the idea of how how we inflict ourselves on the landscape, what we can do to it. But it was just an opening, just an entry into it. Is that magazine piece available anywhere? No, I didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I figured I had a much more valuable use for that research. You bet. <laughs> Speaking of dune and uh, deserts. Is there any specific reason, do you think, the regular science fiction publishers were afraid of, of publishing Dune? Why was it Chilton as opposed to Doubleday or...? Well, Doubleday sent me the most marvelous rejection letter you ever saw. It was too long. <laughs> you, you buy them according to length, in other words. It's like shoes. <laughs> they didn't say anything about width. <laughs> Did they ask you to cut it, or did they just say no? Just said, said too long. And that was it? Too long, so long. And from there you went to, directly uh, to Chilton? No, it was, there were, what was it, 12 rejections, I believe. All for the same reason? No, various reasons. Several of them were too long. Several of them said that uh, it was a too far out premise. That was one rejection said. I forget what the others said. They were... Uh, they make they would make amusing reading. They're all on file down in uh, uh, California at Fullerton, in Southern California at Fullerton. What is going on with the Dune movie? Uh, we have a director, David Lynch. 
That's Eraserhead and uh, Eraserhead and, and Elephant, Elephant Man. Man. All right. Any stars? Oh no, you don't have stars until you get a casting director Just with his casting couch and all of those pertinences that you. Who's the producer? I don't know who's going to ride herd on it because uh, Universal has control. How about the script? We're going to labor on that, and I'm going to be part of the team later this month. There were rumors way back when that Alejandro Jodorowsky of El Topo fame... Jodorowsky was going to do it. Jodorowsky, I admire it, but I think Jodorowsky would have had trouble uh, getting into the movie, the scene where the Pope is horsewhipped. What eventually did happen to Jodorowsky? The people who were backing him, the, um, the money, just backed out. They came to the U.S. They had no idea about movie distribution in the U.S., how it works. And the major money was a very famous family, I won't mention any names, in Europe, very wealthy. And I, I was told, now this is all hearsay, I was told that they felt that they were not given enough attention in the U.S., that they didn't like the way distribution worked over here, and just backed out. So as far as you know, he never shot a, an inch of film? No, they did a lot of artwork. I have a copy of the of the storyboard. Foss, Geiger, there were uh, there was a lot of heavy metal in it. It would have made a fascinating movie. Who are the other people involved in the script now? The team? director and myself. What kind of budget is it being given? Forty million. Well, that's more than Heaven's Gate. Well, you know, Lynch is noted for bringing films in under budget, way under budget. Where did you get the idea of the, the still suit from? Did you uh, do research on that specifically? It came to me. I, I did a little research on the state of the art on whether it was feasible. It seemed to me that it was feasible or just next door to feasible, that the R&D would, would get there. So I just said, okay, we've done it, which is a thing that a science fiction writer can say. Were you surprised by the astonishing success of Dune? At first, yes. They, um, uh, especially when the publishers uh, sat on my money, Chilton didn't distribute it, didn't keep up with the orders, didn't know what they had. I didn't know what they had, of course. Yeah. And one of the fascinating things to me was that there were more copies sold in college towns around the U.S. than were declared on the publisher's manifest. How did you straighten them out on that, other than going in there and shaking your fist under their noses? We sent in accountants. This was the softcover version. I have no idea what the in-house arguments were. I was surprised when I found out how, how well it was doing. Strangely enough, I had no consideration of that at all in mind when I wrote the book. I think you, you can't put any of your attention on that sort of thing when you're doing a book. You have to concentrate entirely on the story. But you knew at the time that, if nothing else, the book was going to be twice as long, say, as, uh, as Under Pressure. What do you mean, twice as long? As far as I'm concerned, the trilogy was one book. Parts of Children of Dune and Dune Messiah were written before Dune was completed. The last chapter of Dune was written when Dune was just a little over halfway written. It was one book, in my head. You knew when you were writing Dune that there would be a Dune Messiah and a Children of Dune. I knew the evolutionary process I was going through, and I had pieces, pieces of the rest of it. What about God Emperor of Dune? God Emperor of Dune was a character who had let go of me. Leto II just sat there and went to pocketa to pocketa in my head. And when I started making notes on him, I knew I was cooked and had to do him.
uh, mm. there going to be any more Dune books. I have no way of knowing. The uh, woman in the new one. Ah. Oh, y you like her. She's in the succession. Yes. I mean, if... She's in Atreides. Yeah, and uh, obviously Leto likes her. I mean, it would be clear that if there were to be another one, that she would become more important. Also, you don't really explain how Arrakis goes back to being Sandy again. I've laid in the uh, evolutionary groundwork. Yeah. The devolutionary true. groundwork. Anybody with imagination, I'm sure, can project what will happen. One thing that you do in God Emperor of Dune is you take the the action, in a sense, as a flashback from another couple of thousand years beyond, when the planet is no longer called Arrakis, but rather Arrakis. Mm -hmm. Which means, in a sense, there's 2,000 more years that you can fill the gap on, if you so, so chose. I, I have no intention right now, No, I have no story in mind, let's put it that way, mm. no character in mind that has a hold of me. God Emperor happened because that was just too fascinating a character to let go of. Yeah. Is it true that the title God Emperor of Dune is designed to one-up priest kings of Gore? There's absolutely no association <laughs> in those, Dick. <laughs> I didn't concoct that, by the way. That, that, that's been going around. More or less tongue-in-cheek. Well, yeah, I've, I've heard it from several sources. I, Did you I'm, know this? I'm glad the tongues were in the cheeks. Because... <laughs> Getting back to Dune and Paul Atreides, when Dune came out, I mean, one of the problems, and it's not just in the Dune books, it's any time you have a messiah, per se, someone who's going to grow up to be a leader, whether it be, in a sense, the King Arthur's story, Dune, there are dozens of other examples, the Jesus Christ story, you've got a point where the character becomes an adult and cannot fulfill their promise as Paul Atreides does not fulfill his promise, though Leto, Leto might, perhaps. I have a theory, and I have held to this theory very tenaciously, that heroes are dangerous to human society, to human history. That they are heroes essentially human beings. Now, if Dick Lupoff here makes a mistake, uh, it might cause him a problem. It might uh, cause his family a problem. It might land him in hot water for a week or so, or it might be an oh shucks situation, but it's just one person or a few. If a hero makes a mistake, he makes mistakes for lots of people, and that can be disastrous. I think one of the most dangerous presidents that this country has had in a long time. We've had some very dangerous ones. For example, uh, FDR was dangerous. But the most recent really dangerous one was Jack Kennedy. Because nobody questioned him. Nobody said, hey, wait a minute. Is it really right to do that? Should we do that? Let's see the argument for the other side. Extremely dangerous. We just stand around and say, okay, Mr. Hero, we'll do that. <laughs> yeah. So... In that sense, when you were when you were working on Dune, and you knew that you'd have this huge build-up toward his eventual success and triumph, that beyond that had to be failure. At least, you know, for you philosophically, you were going to make him fail. Well, I was going to ha let him follow a very common evolutionary pattern. That's why Richard Nixon is my hero. What about Alia? Did you Greek tragedy? Now the seeds of greatness were there but also the seeds of destruction. Did you have any reason to not have Ganima in the uh, 
in the fourth book. Ganima was a, the Janus playoff for Leto, the one who did not do it. She was alive at the end of Children of Dune. Yeah. And besides, we've got a dynasty to continue. Leto cannot have any children. Not Leto the second. He can't. So it comes down the distaff side. People ask me about the role of women. I'll let them do anything. They'll no. be good, bad, or indifferent. What about the idea of having Duncan Idaho? Is he? Is, was there a reason for that continuance through every single book? Yes. I wanted a character who would be a his own serial to play off against the longevity of the central character, the protagonist. I was wondering what your involved the Flash Gordon movie was. With the Flash Gordon movie? Uh, not Flash Gordon. Flash Gordon. Flash Gordon. <laughs> I was called over to do some script doctoring on the original script. I did it. Then they got another director. Nick Rogue was the director when I was over there. Walkabout. Then a new director came in, a whole new team, and... I think some of my stuff survived in it. But not much. And I, I didn't want any credits. Okay, the final question. In 1977, Ballantine Books published a novel called Sword of Shannara by Terry Brooks. After reading the novel, I drew up a long list of plot points the book shared with the Lord of the Rings trilogy, so many, in fact, that the publisher, Judy Lynn Del Rey, also the publisher of the Tolkien books, admitted with a nod when I met her that any other publisher could have been sued for plagiarism. What turned Sword of Shannara into a bestseller, however, was a very positive review by Frank Herbert that appeared in the New York Times. Dick Lupoff became obsessed with the review and how it ignored the similarities between the two books. In the final question, he asked Herbert about the review. At first, Herbert admitted that he overlooked the Tolkien-esque prose style because most new authors copy others. When Dick pressed him further about the content, Herbert finally said that he had never read Lord of the Rings. After that answer, he said abruptly, Time's up. We thanked him. The tape ended. After the interview, Frank Herbert wrote two more Dune sequels, Heretics of Dune and Chapter House Dune, before dying at the age of 65 in 1986. After his death, his son Brian Herbert, along with Kevin J. Anderson, used Herbert's notes for several other novels and one collection of short stories, which at this point now stands at 15 additional books set in the universe of Dune. The chronological history of Dune concluded with Hunters of Dune and Sandworms of Dune, published in 2006 and 2007, respectively, based on Frank Herbert's original cycle chronology and outlines for the final books of the series. The David Lynch version of Dune, discussed in the interview, came out in 1984 and is currently streaming on HBO Max. As for the abortive film by Alexandra Hodorowsky, a documentary titled Hodorowsky's Dune was released in 2013 and can be rented through several streaming services. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. 